Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. The death of a loved one can have such a profound effect on one's perception of life on earth as we know it. Death can make us question the reason for our existence, why we are here, what is our purpose, and why on earth do we live only to die. In 2007, filmmaker and editor Michael Habernig endured a large number of deaths in terms of family members, friends, even pets in a short period of time. These events led him on a journey to study and investigate what happens to people after they die. Michael began to explore the concept of life after death through renowned authors like Wayne Dyer, Fred Allen Wolf, and Greg Braden. By accident, he stumbled upon interviews with Albert Taylor, William Bullman, and Thomas Campbell. He began searches on astral projection and out-of-body experiences, leading him to remote viewing, multiple dimensions, and past life regressions. Through the work of Brian Weiss and Michael Newton, Michael entered the realm of spirit guides, angels, and healing. He decided to share what he learned by producing a film about death and reincarnation. He reached out to April Hanna, a holistic healer with a counseling practice, first as an interviewee, but she became a producer, and the two have created a series of films, The Path Trilogy, to help others understand these transitions. Michael and April, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Now, first, why don't we start by talking a bit about the film series. What is the PATH trilogy? And can you share a bit about what each film explores? Sure. The, the PATH trilogy is a, a, a series of films, basically, that explore the, uh, the science of consciousness. Uh, the first film, The Afterlife, um, which was released in 2009, um, is mainly about death and where do you go when you die and um, different aspects of uh, reincarnation and um, the whole uh, near-death experience um, uh, that uh, Lindsay, for example, had, who was in the film, uh, she was struck by lightning. It follows her um, experience going um, and dying and coming back and explaining what exactly happened. And then the first half of the film is actually uh, are different participants explaining um, after-death communication with loved ones and friends that uh, they have experienced. The second film, uh, which was just released this past February, is called uh, The Path Beyond the Physical, and that deals mainly with, uh, as, as the title, going beyond the physical uh, through uh, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, um, and also um, uh, lucid dreaming is also another part of that. And it deals with the the different um, aspects of the, the out-of-body experience uh, and how it can be manipulated through fear and uh, the different emotions that you go through. Uh, the third film is actually, we will begin production on that in the next couple weeks, and that is mainly about the evolution of the soul and consciousness. It'll 
tie back in with uh, reincarnation, and uh, it, it'll be more of a look at that subject. And it ha- has all the same um, experts that we interviewed for the first two films. Um, April, did you want to add anything to that regarding um, your role as producer? And the, how do you, how did you discern the people? How do you both discern the kind of people and experts that uh, that you bring into the program? Well, when Michael contacted me, I had um, some personal experiences with healers in the community that live locally. And I thought, you know, they taught me a lot about healing and spirituality. Before he had contacted me, he had found the Monroe Institute, which is located in Faber, Virginia, Thomas Campbell and William Buhlman. He asked if I would reach out to those people and so obtain some interviews. Traveled for about a week. It took a week. We each had full-time jobs and took a week off uh, for a vacation and pretty much traveled up the East Coast to get all the interviews in seven days. That's very efficient. <laughs> very good. I like that. Um, so you two seem like a natural match here in terms of uh, of production uh, in film, and and uh, and you're organized, which is uh, great considering the vastness of what you're exploring and how kind of the esoteric nature and how far that can go. Um, so it's good you you pull these strengths together here. Now, have the films been screened yet? And I mean, the first two. And to what kind of response? Yes, uh, both both the films have been um, screened so far. Um, like uh, this past March, we screened, uh, actually our first screening for Beyond the Physical was at the Monroe Institute. And uh, it was on the eve of William Buhlman's out-of-body um, experience seminar that he was hosting that week. So it was really good to uh, meet up with the uh, uh, new president of uh the Monroe Institute, uh, and uh, also meet up with William, who we haven't seen since 2009, and to get their uh, views of the film and how, what they thought of it, and also uh, to show it to participants of the Monroe Institute. Uh, from there, it's actually been screened a few times uh, throughout New York. Um, let's see, in April, it was screened in Hudson, New York, at a local college, and also... Um, in Austin, Texas, we did a screening uh, through INAX, and also the Austin chapter of the Monroe Institute was there as well. And it was really good to uh, connect with a lot of the fans, and uh, especially the fans of the Monroe Institute and uh, organizations like INAX, and, and to get their take on, on the film and the subject matter that we dealt with. Yeah, we also took it to Atlanta, Georgia recently, and uh, the film is also going to be a part of a film forum that's happening out in Kansas City on August 15th, and we have some of that information on our website. Oh, great, great. We'll make sure to add that on ours, too. Now, um, we've had several guests over the years here uh, come on the program and share about things like near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences, um, a chaplain at uh, Eastern Maine Medical Center up in Bangor, uh, shared of his own uh, experience and experience of others as well. And uh, other guests like Annie Kagan, you know, continuing conversations or communications with her uh, brother who had passed on after death. Um, so we really enjoy and uh, welcome uh, more information about this journey and these transitions. What is your hope for the films? What is, the, what is their purpose? Let's start there. Well, I think one of the one of the hopes is that the film is going to reach as many people as possible. 
you know, we are really reaching people all over the world. Our films are selling nationally and internationally, which is always really fun to see when the orders come in. And, you know, I think a lot of the feedback that we got from the first film was that in studying the afterlife and life after death, there is a quality to the film that really brought comfort to many people who had the fear of death. And then I would say the second film, a lot of the feedback that we're getting after people watch it, they get very excited and they say, I want to try this. Or if they have tried to explore an out-of-body experience, they want to get back into it. And, you know, we've had a couple of comments where people have said this film opened up my eyes to really how expansive this universe is and that, you know, sometimes we get so attached to the physical world that we forget that there are some other places that consciousness can travel to. Yes, we we can forget that, and that's really important. Um, now, Michael, could you please share about some of the experience now that led you on your spiritual journey in the first place? And please take your time, you know, share any pertinent stories uh, and so on. You have the floor. Sure. Uh, yes, it was um, I, I was around 2007. I, I, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I went through the... Pretty much the whole year of every month, I had uh, you know a few people in my family uh, pass away, and the, the, I mean these were some were freakish in nature, some were natural causes, and it really, really uh, you know halfway through the year it was really eye-opening experience. Um, just I had this really uh, big curiosity as to where they were going. You know, is are they actually going anywhere, or are they just you know, is that or do they cease to exist? Um, and I, I just really needed to explore that. So I, that's when I started digging out the books. Um, I found Thomas Campbell's uh, books. Actually, I um, I had heard an interview with him. I, I think it was on Art Bell's program a year, a few years back. And uh, uh, I, I was telling my my mother about it. And for Christmas, she got me the whole his whole trilogy of books. And I started going through that. I uh, um, read uh, William Buhlman's books. Um, and I was just really interested in, in the whole out-of-body concept and how you can explore these, for lack of a better term, beyond the physical uh, realm. You can exp- you know, explore that uh, yourself and then come up with your own um, answers, basically. And so th- going through the, through the film series, we felt that we needed to start where everybody can experience which is the death and somebody at everybody at some point will experience death whether it's yourself or it's you know initially through uh, the death of a loved one so we felt that starting there within the afterlife would be a good a good start and then it, as we produced the film and then started working on the second film i felt that uh the the out of body experience was a big part of at least my path and I, I felt thro- I felt throwing that into the film would be good for people to start their own path if that's you know if they wanted to, and this would be a good way for them to find their own answers. And uh, so that's basically the the whole point of the film series is for people to get a glimpse as, at my path and part of April's path, and to form their own path or at least start their journey on their own path if they choose to. Thank you for that, uh, Michael. Now, you had a watershed year, basically, an experience that many people have when suddenly things seem to happen all at the same time. And suddenly, 
uh, our eyes can be taken off the horizon where they used to being and just sort of put right down on the ground in front of us where we're walking. And it changes how we perceive things. Um, uh, Teresa of Avila wrote uh, how her life changed just by turning her vision a little inward. And, uh, and that helped her to uh, become the the mystic and to connect with the the her authentic self in a fuller way now you are here uh, i gather from your material uh you were rather unprepared in 2007 let's say taken by surprise by these things did you have any experience as a kid growing up any kind of framework in terms of spirituality or religion in the household or were you raised in a in a more secular manner yeah, that, that's actually a good question. I was raised a uh, very Catholic, a uh, very Catholic household. Um, you know, from grandparents to cousins to uh, my immediate family, uh, we were you know church every Sunday. And uh, when I got to high school, um, that's uh, I had a my, my first death experience was in high school where I, I was a great grandparent had passed away, and that was kind of. I think that probably broke the seal on the uh, curiosity, as you could say. And then I was, you know, growing up, of course, you know, in uh, middle school and high school, I was very interested in, you know, the sci-fi movies. You know, I watched the X-Files and, you know, I was always into that, you know, the UFO and the ghosts, um, the, the hauntings and all that. But, um, you know, of course, as time goes on, you mature and you, you start having real questions, um, you, you really want to start finding these answers on your own. And I, I was not getting that through, uh, you know, the Catholic Church and other religions I had looked at just, you know, some were a little bit better, some were, you know, didn't or went further away from the question that I had asked. So I felt finding my own answers uh, through this research um, was the best way for me to go. And from there, I, I felt like I a lot of my questions have been answered and I, I, every day as I get new answers, I get more questions. So right. I don't know if this cycle will ever end. Right, right. I think as we get older, the, we only get better questions. <laughs> no, maybe not so many answers, just better questions. <laughs> right. right. Um, but I, I, would, I just want to ask you a little to, you know, if we can dig a little deeper there, because I also come out of the uh, uh, Catholic tradition. And so there you are in church every Sunday and there's the, you know, the cross in front of you, there's, there's the man, you know, there, yeah. and then there's Easter and then resurrection. And I'm just wondering what wasn't there. I'm just really curious because sometimes we're spoken to in, you know, through different languages and different words in other traditions that where we make a connection, even though we've seen something like that in front of us. Uh, I was getting, and, and I hate to use this, um, this term, but it's, and, you know, feel free to edit this out, but I, I always get the, I was always in church. I was always getting the Santa Claus excuse. Like, you know, it, if you're good throughout the year, you, Santa Claus will come to your house. If you're not, you'll, he won't come and you won't get your Christmas presents. I was kind of, you know, getting that growing up in the church. If you're good, you get the good death. If you're bad, you, you know, you go to that, you know that fireplace. You know the the, the hell place. You I know, see. and it, it. You know, as you're growing up and you you start reading. You know, you know. I was also into um, 
I'm not a scientist by any means, but I was always always interested into you know different science experiments and stuff. And I I was a big fan of uh, Nikola uh, Tesla and just reading his stuff. And I, I he's amazing. Was, yes, yeah. and I it, following that kind of of reading that material, you you kind of see that the universe is much more complex than a a good place and a bad place. Um, yes. Yes, yeah, so so judgment is something that can get in the way of this right. kind of understanding or fear, especially fear of judgment. And, and I completely relate to uh, your relationship with sci-fi and science. A lot of my work has been in uh, how the space sciences actually uh, inform my spirituality and um, shows like, uh, uh, you mentioned the X-Files, but uh, let's say Star Trek The Next Generation you know, really had an effect on making people think about exactly these things you're bringing up, about just how big the universe is, and oh, to try yeah. to take the judgment factor out. Yeah, And, and engage differently. Right. I, and I, I looked around my family, and um, uh, a lot of, like, my grandparents, uh, you know, they, religion really worked for them. And it works for a lot of people, you know, in the world still. And, you know, I don't want to take that away from them because it, it does, it is answering their questions for them at this time. And, but at the same time, it's like, it just wasn't working for me. And shortly before I started having all the deaths in the family, my mother actually kind of came to the same conclusion, you know, a couple of years before me. And she, you know, she would come around the house with, uh, she, you know, she started out with aromatherapy and then from there it got a little bit deeper and she started getting into Reiki. And at the same time I was rolling my eyes saying, oh, what are you, what are you doing, mom? You, you can't, <laughs> you know, we, you know, you can't do that. But then, you know, I went through that experience and it's like, I, I'm like her biggest supporter now when she starts doing these things and I can't take that away from her, you know, and at the same time, you know. Um, where do I want to go with this? It's just, you know, religion has its place, and I think this path, uh, at least my path, has a place, you know, for me, and it works for me. And I think from the feedback we've gotten from the film so far, I, I think it, it does answer some questions for people. And I hope the third film will actually, you know, answer more questions once that's produced. Thank you so much. Now, April. Let's discuss a little of your background. Now, what led you into holistic healing and counseling? And um, feel free to share any, you know, pertinent stories or anecdotes or, you know, milestones along your way. Sure. I guess I would say always growing up as a child, I knew that I always wanted to be a counselor. You know, helping people, something within the helping profession. Communication just came really easily to me. I was always drawn to people, you know, wanting to help them with their problems. And uh, I went on to go to graduate school, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor. So I've done a lot of clinical counseling in the field. And then I would say, you know, the spiritual aspect. I grew up in a pretty spiritual and psychic household. You know, my mother was, my grandmother, my aunt, you know, they would kind of tell stories of their experiences, even though we also had a Catholic upbringing, probably not as strict as what Mike's experience was, because my mom early on uh, got pretty angry at the church because she didn't go every Sunday, so they wouldn't allow her to baptize me there. So she was pretty angry about that. So I wasn't a religious churchgoer, but, you know, would 
we would go every once in a while, usually on the Catholic holidays. And then, you know, as I got older, I dabbled a little bit in spirituality, trying out different churches and see what worked. But I would say for me, with the healing experience, because I too, you know, practice Reiki and energy medicine and, you know, looked into the chakras. And I just also felt a calling to, you know, to be able to touch people and to offer a healing. So I started to try to find trainings that were related to that and incorporated into my practice of clinical counseling. Um, and I would say growing up, I guess I kind of knew that there was always something more because I had a lot of, you know, psychic experiences. You know, some people would say deja vu is probably one of the first thing that kind of feels weird when you experience it. Now, you mentioned deja vu. Were there any other kind of instances you could tell us about? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my experiences happened a lot through dreaming, um, dreaming that certain things would happen, and then the experience would come true. I always thought that was really weird when I was younger and a teenager. Um, some of it would entail my dreams being in these certain homes and houses and, you know, walking upstairs and going into different bedrooms. And then, lo and behold, I would go and visit a relative's house or go to a friend's family's house, and it was a house that I had dreamt of. So that was always quite interesting. Do you think that some of these dream experiences were actually out-of-body experiences? I would say so. I mean, a lot of Tom Campbell in our film pretty much says that the dream state is basically another reality frame. You know, when we are here and awake, this feels real. And when we're sleeping, you know, that's another reality frame that you can enter and explore. And there's different rules. So there's certain things that you can do differently in dreams that you can't do here. And I would say so. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation on the PATH film series. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking about the PATH film series with filmmakers Michael Habernig and April Hanna. Now, for those just joining the program, the PATH trilogy explores the subjects of death and reincarnation. In the second part of the program, we'll get more into the subjects that are, that are in your film. And, um, but first, I just wanted to touch base on some things like, you know, did you ever think that you would become filmmakers on topics like death and reincarnation? And uh, also, how did it align with your journey, let's say your professional journey? I mean, Mike, were you, in, were you already working in the media and considering these issues? Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've been with uh, uh, TV and film production since, since high school, basically. Uh, and I, I was working in live TV, uh, like TV news, talk shows, um, you know, for a number of years. And in 2007, um, I, I was working at a, a, a cable network um, in upstate New York uh, producing commercials. And that, um, I had also started a, um, my own production company at the time, and I was doing you know, small little productions and YouTube had just started coming out and around then and that, that was starting to take off. So I was doing a lot of, the, you know, small productions and a little bit of corporate work. And then, uh, the, the, you know, this topic pretty much just f fell into my lap and, uh, you know, it, I had to, uh, I felt like I had to do something about it. And I thought, you know, uh, as you can tell, I'm not a very good <laughs> public speaker, but uh, I figured you know I could at least get the message out through something I know how to do, which is uh, create a film or some sort of video. And in, in the early days, actually, we um, had talked about just doing these interviews and putting them out on YouTube, but we felt it'd be more uh, dramatic. And uh, and I, I feel with something being dramatic, uh, you create an emotion, and it, when you wrap this information or any information really in, in emotion you, you you kind of get the audience to feel the message better and more intense than a simple you know 10 minute little YouTube clip would do yeah. and I felt you know that the audience can take more out of it and it would stay with the audience more if it was in a larger production like a, like a DVD film Oh, yes, agreed. And uh, so much of this, you know, appeals to the senses in terms of, you know, the beauty involved as well. Um, that it's, I think it's great that, that you turn to filmmaking. You're, you're a media person who essentially turned to media uh, going through a spiritual, both a spiritual crisis as well as uh, the, the journey that led you out. Yeah, you could yeah. say it's pretty much the, you know, the perfect storm for the, making this kind of movie. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so now... From your experience, like say what when you walked in, kind of like your audience, when you walked in this life, you know what was your understanding of death, for example, and what is it now after your this journey that you began? Um, and, that, and that's to both of you. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start. I guess um, I always felt. Well, let's say before two thousand seven, I always felt that when you died, you know, you you live as long as you can, and you do as you know. You do well, you know, in the earth, or, you know, that, that whole <laughs> line. You do, as, you know, the best you can, and then when you die, you're judged. And when, if you did good, you, you know, you pass the test, you get to, you know, you get to hang out with the cool kids. And, uh, you know, if, if you did bad, then, you know, you're punished, you know, for eternity. That, that's, you know, and, and I'm, of course, you know, 
painting in broad strokes. And there's also that, well, if we're not sure, then you go to purgatory, you know, f- for how many millennium or whatever. But now it's kind of like, no, this is, it, it's not, there's no test. It's, it's constant classes. And you, when you die, you, you're, you're not judged. You're just kind of, it's kind of like a self-evaluation where you just take a step back. You look at what you did and say, okay, now what, what do I need to improve? Um, and, and what can I do in the next life that's con- going to help that? You know, and, and you look around at your soul group and you look at them and, you know, that you work with them and you, you pretty much together, put together a plan together about, you know, how are they going to help you and how are you going to help them? And it's this constant, uh, you know, eternal class um, and it and it's not all going to take place on Earth, um, and it's you know the next life could be on you know ten galaxies away and you know underwater kind of thing, or you know it could be you know back here on Earth and I could play you know my great grandson or great granddaughter, who knows? And it, that's that's kind of how I feel now, and it's, it's you know it's kind of open ended, and there's no real you know it, it's not going to be a certain way. It's just it's constantly changing. That's vastly different yeah. from where you started. Yeah, it's very different. <laughs> yes, yes. April? Yeah, I would say, you know, I learned that you go to heaven. And, you know, same type of things that Mike said, you know, just try to do your best and, you know, karma and, you know, make the right decisions because if you make the right decisions, you'll head on up there when you die. And I remember when I was a young girl, I was on a trip to Arizona to see my dad and it was my first plane ride. And I remember when we got up in the air, I was really disappointed because I thought I was going to see heaven because everybody would, you know, point to the sky, you're going to go up there. And I was thinking, well, I thought I'd see heaven if I came up here. And I was really disappointed. And there was something really strange about that day where I was thinking, well, how far up do you have to go to get there? And, you know, being a young child and more of like a concrete thinker, I think something kind of changed for me then. And through the film, I mean, I've learned so much, um, have taken some concepts and tried to apply them to my own experience. And I would say I'm no longer afraid of death. I understand that we're consciousness and consciousness just continues to evolve. And I, I like Mike's explanation. I think that we are here in classes to learn. And, you know, as Tom Campbell would say, we're here to evolve our consciousness. And, you know, I think that there is some truth in, you know, trying to be a good person and and have really good intention behind your behaviors and your actions. But I would say that the fear of death has really just minimized for me, not, not even there. I just understand energy and consciousness so much differently now. That's a powerful statement. And, you know, some would say that that's exactly, let's say, what, what Jesus was trying to do in, in showing so strongly the death and resurrection to, to break the fear, the, the fear of death. And I don't know if you, uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the film Defending Your Life, because as you're talking, I'm just picturing Albert Brooks saying, I'll do my best, <laughs> my very best, I promise, I'll do my best. <laughs> Have you seen this movie? <laughs> I no. I think okay. it's been a while since I've seen I, I, that. I think you might want to <laughs> see that again in light of your trilogy. Um, there's some funny scenes in there uh, that, that, you know, add humor into this, uh, this scenario. Uh, into, I like your phrase, the soul group. Uh, I know that you were learning about spirit guides. Um, it, does yes. that come out of that learning? Yeah, d- definitely. Um, uh, I think it was a, maybe a deleted clip that we posted on YouTube a while back. Uh, I think it was Brenda 
um, or I don't even know if we published this yet. It, it Brenda and from the film uh, talks about uh, you know we we have a soul group that we you know we'll share several lives together and we kind of travel together and just helping each other out and it's kind of like a family. And then you know I've also realized too that you know when people say they die and they say it's it's like you know ultimate bliss that and joy that they come into once they've had a traumatic death. Well. Part of what that I think that at least for me I feel that the bliss is probably it's kind of like maybe coming home from college and it's kind of like coming home in your home again and your parents are there and you know your family's there and it's that that bliss you get when you you've gone away for a long time and you come back to your family and that that's what I think happens when when you die. That's very comforting. Thank you. Um, something that's come up several times in the conversation is the word fear and, and fear of death, which, of course, is a driving force in, in many cultures and, um, and the, also the driving force of many, many, many spiritual and religious works uh, around the world through the millennia. Um, what are your thoughts on how we perceive death, in ter- not just in terms of fear of death, but fear in general? in our culture, what is the role that you perceive it having? And is that largely our biggest challenge? Well, I mean, I can speak to that just from my practice. I see fear all the time. I deal with a lot of people who come in and are experiencing anxiety, which to me is fear. It's all fear. A lot of stuff is fear-based. And, um, you know, in the work, in the clinical work of some of these people's like soul paths or their explorations or, you know, some of the symptoms that they're having it to me, I feel like I'm seeing that there's two lessons in the world. And one is how do we conquer our fear and how do we conquer our ego? Those seem to be the two things that really get people in a bind. And people are trying to explore that and work that out. That's interesting because they're uh, in many ways connected to each other, the fear of, of losing something, uh, losing ourselves, losing identity, kind of wrapped up in the ego. Uh, on another program uh, with Annie Kagan that we did, she shared that um, these messages sent from her brother that uh, going through many, many uh, phases of change after death and at some point it being explained to him that even his memories were going to be gone. And we talked about that. Um, you know, that there was some fear in even what that means because, uh, you know, the, our, our memories are basically, you know, who, what have defined us, you know, who we loved, our children, our, you know, what, where we worked, what we've done. And, and, you know, even after death that there was a, a resistance to, to that. And then learning that it's not lost because nothing's lost in this universe. It's just transformed. Does that resonate with some of your experience and understanding? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, and I, I was just actually thinking about that from Annie's book. Uh, I, ju- I finished it literally two weeks ago. Um, and I, I was trying to relate it to, you know, what I had learned from producing the path. And um, she talks about when her brother, I don't want to give too much away from her book, but there's uh, the part where they kind of carve his memories into the um, the cathedral type place that they were at, and I thought that was interesting. It's very a, a big metaphor for um, um, basically what Tom Campbell says, where everything's stored in a database. You know, he's the he's a scientist, so it, his metaphors are all going to be based around computers and 
physics and you know so he's got that you know that hard um metaphor of you know it's in a giant database it's in a server you could say in the cloud you know it everything is stored there so nothing is ever lost and you know there is that f- back to the fear you know to think that you're going to lose all your memories all that that work you've done you know is gone but it, you know you do have that initial fear but in reality it's it's not it's like you said that's not gone at all it's stored in the in the cloud <laughs> interesting how technology is sort of following along here with uh, its own kind of spiritual development <laughs> in <Right>. the cloud. <laughs> in uh, in your journey, uh, both of you, could you share also, and, and also as it, uh, as it emerges in the films, is there an interfaith perspective? What do you see in themes of death and reincarnation or, or new life or renewal in traditions around the world? You know, one of the things that I really like about our films, especially, we touch on it probably in the first and the second pretty heavily, is just people having belief systems. And, of course, we do a lot of quoting a Tom Campbell because his his theory just seems to really fit with a lot of things. And he talks about how all beliefs are traps. And, you know, it's not so much about believing something, but it's about experiencing something and then trying to be this open-minded skeptic about all things. So I don't know if I necessarily have, you know, one view that favors more than the other. I mean, when I think about reincarnation, it sounds like a pretty pretty solid thing. I, I would like to believe that, that that's what's happening. There's a lot of stuff that makes sense to it when we think about the evolution of consciousness and coming back to this classroom to learn and evolve what we weren't able to do the first time around. Um, but I really liked and kind of hung on to this concept of trying not to have too many beliefs about anything. Did you find in your journey that um, you were informed in part? I mean, reincarnation itself is, uh, it tends to be more, um, I guess, in the Asian uh, Hindu religions and, and belief systems. Did uh, you find a way to sort of become informed about these things and sort of integrate them? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, growing up, you know, being in the church, it, you know, you weren't supposed to talk about reincarnation. Um, it just, it just wasn't real. You know, to growing up then, and you know, even when I was going through high school, it's like no. And my views started to mature a little bit. It took me a while to really grasp the reincarnation. And then after you know, producing the films and meeting all these experts, it's and reading um, up on, especially like the Dalai Lama, for example, and uh, some other um, experts out there like Brian Weiss and Michael Newton, it's, and you hear how they get, you know, you know, from talking with their clients, it's, it's like, how can you not <laughs> expect reincarnation? You know, it, it's hard to disprove it now. It, it's, I, I don't, the the other way just doesn't make any sense anymore to at least to me and i'm i'm sure that's probably going to disagree with a lot of your listeners but oh no it won't actually i <laughs> I, I don't and you know it and i think you know as we talk about the evolution i think that's part of the process we're in now we're kind of in a transition where you know a lot of uh faiths are probably going to slowly drop away and we're just going to have this you know, it, it, where it's it, kind of like a unified 
I don't want to say belief, but it's a unified idea of how the universe works. But at the same time, we're all going to have our individual experiences that can be very, very different. Yes. But I, I don't, and I, I think as, you know, as these new generations come in, it's like, I don't know, I don't think they see religion the same way that I I did, at least my generation, and definitely see it very different as the generation or two generations before, like my grandparents' uh, yeah. generation, where everything, ha you know, it, it's, you know, you have your family, and then you have the church, and then you have the government, <laughs> and you pay them in that order. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I well, that's that funny. was 50, yeah. 60 years ago, so I, I see that very different now. Yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, I think uh, in, er in earlier times, religion was sort of the maybe served more as the the thing that kept people together, or kept you know communities strong uh, centrally. But as we have move on where, to where that's not really so much our interest anymore, and we're sort of turning to face outwardly and break through barriers and engaging others, that the need is going to change. And, and whatever form then that spirituality has from whatever tradition you're coming from is going to change uh, in response to this sort of outward turning. So now you're starting on the third film. Right. Yep. And how is this going, you know, in terms of funding, in terms of production? Um, do you have supporters or investors who are helping you along the way? No, um, not not really, no. Um Basically, the first film uh, came out of our own pocket to start out to, to get the initial interviews done. Um, I luckily had our, all the equipment, most of the equipment already from um, my own uh, production company, so I, I was able to work that in you know on off hours I could put in time to produce the film and a lot of the funding from that film went to fund the second film or I should say the sales from the first film uh, helped fund the second film and now the sales from the second film will help produce the third film and uh, you know it's not just going to be these three films I think the, the three films um, initially are going to be kind of like the flagship uh, films uh, for the the company and there'll be a lot of little uh, projects that we work on and you know um, it, it's, it's going to be a wide variety of of projects in the future, but initially it's just mainly just getting these three films out because that's basically the backbone of the company uh, that we're working on. These three will be your foundation. Basically, yes. Yes. And so now how do you perceive or hope that these films uh, together uh, can help others? Can you share a little more of that? I, I think to get get people started on their own path if they have the, the uh, desire to start their own path. They, they might already be down their own path and then these films might change their direction a little bit or this could be you know the exact same path that they've been on for years and this just confirms what they've already been experiencing. And it's not in the films we talk a lot about belief but it a lot of it is especially with the second film it's about experience. Um, you you can't you can say yes, I believe that, or yes, I believe that, and it's or I don't believe that. But you can't take away somebody's experience. Uh, 
And I think that's the purpose of everything, is to have our own experience. And I kind of went on a windy road there, but it's No, no, it's that's, really, that's very good. That's very it, good. And, and also, think, go ahead. Oh, no, I am just, just wanted to wrap up and say that it's... In the path, it, it's a very branched out road. There's many forks, there's many turns, but I think we all have our own unique path that we take. And that, that's, you know, this is my path, and I, I maybe somebody will be inspired to start their own path. You know, and maybe there'll be another series of films from somebody else that might, you know, yeah. you know take yeah. from the, the same ideas. Yes, that's definitely. And uh, April, would you like to uh, add something to that? I recall uh, another film that comes to mind, What Dreams May Come, that tells me that, you know, the saying, life is what you make of it, uh, that perhaps death is what you make of it as well. Yeah, yeah well, I think Mike sums it up really well. I mean, I've, I would agree with all of that. You know, Mike's path and in this whole experience has kind of been his own. I've been able to take my own as well and, and integrate it into my life. So even though, you know, Mike and I share the same path of the, of the films, we're each having individual experiences as a result of that. And it's kind of fostering our lives in different ways. So I think it's just been incredible and it's been, you know, very exciting. And, you know, we really rely a lot on our DVD sales. That's pretty much it, like Mike was saying. You know, we, we really value our customers. We value the people that come out to our screenings, you know, and spend their hard-earned money on purchasing the DVDs and, you know, buying tickets to see the show. And um, I would I would agree. I just hope that it impacts people. And I think that's one of the best feelings that I personally get after a live screening and we have a question and answer panel is just getting the feedback from the people and how it made them think differently or it brought them comfort or whatever the case may be like that's really amazing to think that we came up with something and we truly are having an individual impact with each person who sees the film that's just beautifully said and shared and i'm glad that you doing such great work and inspiring people and as we near the end of the interview, I just want to let listeners know that all this uh, website information, contact, and film information will be posted shortly on GodspeedInstitute.com. And so you can follow the Path Trilogy uh, from there. Now, Michael and April, I just want to thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you and learning about your work. Oh, yes, thank you. During the show, we discussed uh, Teresa of Avila, who came up, and the subject of fear, and the subject of turning our gaze a little inward uh, in order to actually increase our vision and uh, develop spiritually. Teresa, who was a great mystic of Spain and one of the leading figures in spirituality in the church and as an author of her amazing works, including The Interior Castle, for which she's probably best known, is a wonderful example of how human beings evolve. And she shares with us through all of her writings exactly how she evolves, which is even more special. And I'd like to share with you a reflection from Inspired Relationships, which is my new book coming out this fall. And here's a little bit about the development of Teresa. 
For many years, I frequented various cafes in my hometown of New York City. Especially as an NYU college student and throughout my twenties, it was irresistible for me to go, journal in hand, to a favorite haunt, to sit ensconced by a particular window, gazing on a certain view, nurse several cups of some rich brew, and write amidst the gentle buzz of people, quiet music, conversations, and perfect anonymity in a public setting. Of particular fondness was the Grand Café degli Artisti, a second-floor café overlooking Greenwich Avenue in the West Village. It was a café built in several rooms, each with a different mood, all leading to each other. First was the light and airy front room with large storefront windows and exposed brick filled with sunshine and gallery art on the walls. This led to a darker Gothic room, dimly lit with heavy wooden tables and tall throne-like chairs. An enormous candle in the shape of a castle had melted down onto a fireplace mantel and was left there. A mesmerizing moonstone mirror hung on the back wall and invited the onlooker into a fairy tale. One table in this room had a secret drawer. People who knew of this would leave notes there. Questions, observations, poetry. Anonymous strangers would comment or reply and place their response back in the drawer to be discovered by their veiled pen pals. Finally, the Gothic room led to a tiny library in the back, like a stone cell with a few shelves of books and room for about only four people. As a student and young adult, I frequented this cafe often, alone or with friends, and after a long absence with my husband and family, I cherished it like a secret nest, a private chapel, and its rooms leading to rooms would become a working image for me. But sometimes we need to be careful of the things we cherish, no matter how enjoyable they become habits and attachments, reinforcing a tendency to experience things in one way. Teresa's convent had a parlor or locutorio, a lively kind of think tank where diverse visitors would come to discuss matters of faith with the spiritual masters in residence. Teresa became a luminary in the parlor, and she loved it. She was magnetic, accessible, and knowledgeable. She relished the attention, but she was also in a bind. Her attachment to being liked and admired would keep her life and work running in place for years. Teresa was a lover, a lover of people and friendship. She had a plethora of friends of both sexes, and she loved them, and she loved being loved by them. Who cannot relate to this somehow? As a freshman in college, my dormitory friends, male and female, became my closest cohorts and confidants. Our hilarious dinner conversations in the dining room were almost in code. A series of puns, Monty Python gags, Bugs Bunny cartoons, and Sinatra song lyrics that only our intimate understanding of each other could interweave and understand. Yes, it was delicious, but all dinners must come to an end. It did not end for Teresa. It was in this manner that she lived out the entire first half of her ministry, two decades. Her beloved activity of cherishing and being cherished made her feel good, but it actually kept her stagnant in a double life. She was captivated by guests, captivated by men, young and old, who appeared to appreciate her. Psychologically, it can be said she held a kind of harem in her mind. 
a comforting, at times exciting, massage of ego and her worldly sense of belonging, she explains candidly in Life her autobiography. I had a serious fault that did me much harm. It was that when I began to know that certain persons liked me and I found them attractive, I became so attached that my memory was bound strongly by the thought of them. Teresa lived this way for nearly twenty years, with one foot in her life of professed ministry and the other foot in the world of her attachments, emotional attachments that were rooted not in her soul but in her psyche. Chemistry is exhilarating after all, but in the end she was merely distracted, and somewhere inside her the popular girl was suffering from the duality. Teresa wrestled with this double life until she began to consider her distractions. Why the unease? Aren't all friendships good and desirable? Are mine in alignment with God's will for me? Like Francis of Assisi, she began to discern that divided, she was literally wasting much of her time in a frivolous manner that nurtured one part of her personality, but not her soul, her heart, or spirit. Reflecting on this, Teresa wrote in her autobiography, One day I was wondering if it was an attachment for me to find satisfaction in being with persons with whom I discuss my soul and whom I love, or with those who I see are great servants of God, since it consoled me to be with them. Nothing would move forward for Teresa until she could unravel this question. Finally, with the help of an honest and patient colleague who also perceived her plight, she would begin to do the work of making the distinctions between the categories above, the persons with whom she discussed her soul, the persons whom she loved, and the great servants of God who gave her comfort. She would begin to decipher what she meant by satisfaction, the source of this pleasure, and her underlying motive for seeking it. For Teresa, this development was like breaking a spell. Now she could review her life, see where she had experienced codependent behavior with colleagues, see how many times she had fallen in love with someone because he loved her spirit and shared conversation about her soul, her deepest self. Finally, she was able to discern when, quote, excessive love occurred or when she lost herself or became too attached or entangled. Once she was able to make those connections, Teresa did grieve the years wasted, realizing how she had been imprisoned by her deeply personal and not spiritual needs. But then, just as openly, Teresa gives us direction on how this internal change occurred. By turning my gaze just a little inward to behold the image I have in my soul, I obtain such freedom. There is no knowledge of any kind of gift that I think could amount to anything when placed alongside of what it is to hear just one spoken word from the divine mouth just a little inward. Teresa of Avila was already a spiritual master, shining as best as possible from under her bushel basket of infatuations. Now, unfettered, the master was liberated. Her locutorio would now be her conversation with spirit. Her light and airy exterior room would give way to the deeper, darker mystery of her enthroned chamber hidden within. Her mystical writings would be the notes she would leave there for others. The moonstone mirror on the back wall would become the mirror of her innermost self, at first cloudy, but now clearing and reflecting a newfound purity of intention. 
Finally, passing through these rooms, the private cell at the end of her journey would embrace only four people, the Holy Trinity and she. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at GodspeedInstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.